All across America and around the world, this is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. And now, your host for today's program, Dale Throneberry. And welcome to Veterans Radio. My name is Dale Throneberry, a CW2 helicopter type pilot in Vietnam in 1969. I want to welcome you to our program today. I'm really excited, as usual, to share our guests' opinions and thoughts with you. We've got three really great guests coming up. Number one is Ted Barker, who is from the Korean War Project. Uh, Patrick Benson is from the War Horses for Veterans uh, because they've got a show coming up. It's kind of interesting. And then finally, for the second half, we're going to have Dr. Rebecca Grant on. For those of you that are all familiar with the veteran radio, she has been keeping our audiences informed on foreign policy and uh, Air Force jets and weaponry and all kinds of different things. Uh, I think almost 20 years itself. So, uh, yeah, make sure you just stick around for the whole program. I think you're going to find it really uh, interesting and very, uh, some really great news to pass along to you today. Um, one thing I, I need to pass along to you is that we are coming up on our 20th anniversary here on Veterans Radio. So I want to mark your calendar for Saturday, September 30th, uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern time. We are going to be having our second annual Radio on the River uh, fundraiser, and uh, there'll be more information on our website later this week, but I just want you to make sure that you write that down on your calendar at Saturday, September 30th. Yeah, Michigan's out of town that day. The other thing is that I want to make sure that you're aware of that we are kind of doing a little fundraising ourselves right now, and it's $20 for 20 years. So if you do go to our website, you can uh, just hit on the donation button or hit on the 20 for 20 uh, button, and uh, you're going to be able to help us out. Uh, as you know, it does cost a little, you know, a little money to put this program together and to be on uh, the stations across the country. Uh, the other thing is that uh, also uh, if you want to uh, purchase some of our veterans radio gear, you know, the hats, the mugs, the uh, shirts, and so forth, um, we're also offering a 20% discount on all of that in our uh, Veterans Radio store. So, again, that's something that you can check out on our website. The website, of course, is veteransradio.org. And we thank you all for everything that you've done to help us stay on the air for 20 years. That's now over a 1,000 programs. So we're really excited uh, to keep it going, and we need your help to do that. In addition to that, of course, we want to thank our sponsors um, who – Keep us going week to week. And that is uh, Legal Help for Veterans. Uh, Legal Help for Veterans specializes in veteran disability claims. And so give them a call, 800-693-4800. Also, the National Veterans Business Development Council, better known as NVBDC, is the nation's leading third-party authority for the certification of a veteran-owned business. For more information, you can go to their website, nvbdc.org. Or give them a call at 888-237-8433. If you are a veteran-owned business out there and you want to do business with the federal government and with many corporations, they want you to be a certified veteran-owned business. These are the folks that can help you do that, nvbdc.org. The Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. For more information, go to the va.gov slash Ann Arbor Healthcare. 
We also want to thank our local veterans organizations for their longtime support of getting us off the ground back in 2003. And that is the uh, Vietnam, Charles S. Kettle's Vietnam Veterans of America, Chapter 310, and the Irwin Press Corps and American Legion, Post 46, both of Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Veterans Radio, you can just go to our website, veteransradio.org, and click on the sponsor button. All right, right straight into the program. My first guest today is a a friend of Veterans Radio. He's been on quite a few times, and we're trying to help him out today. So I want to welcome from the Korean War Project, Ted Barker. Ted, welcome to Veterans Radio. Hey, Dale, and congratulations on your 20th anniversary. It seems such a long time ago that I was on your show early on. That's true. We were both just children then. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I know. We don't want anybody to see our pictures. Um, no. <laughs> the reason that I wanted to bring you on, Ted, is that I, I, I noticed on Facebook that you have uh, put up a GoFundMe for your organization. Could you tell the audience what's what's going on with the um, uh, Korean War Project group? Sure. Yes, um, you know, as as we've gone along, our core audience has always been Korean War veterans that are direct family, and majority of them have aged out or become infirm or have passed on, sadly. We've lost a lot of them. And so uh, the majority of the people who I have been sending notices to by email just re- really didn't buy into uh, assisting, and that's just been pretty much the rule of the Internet. So we decided to see if we could go reach out way past our internal veteran grouping and do a GoFundMe to see if uh, we can find some of the serious influencers to pick up on it and help us get where we want to go. And we're looking to try and raise $20,000 to see if we can squeak by. Our annual uh, budget is right around 40000 so we've been pretty close to the bone here this year. Well, we, we want to make sure that you make that twenty thousand and and much much more. I hope because this organization uh, not only helped with the um, you know the the Korean War Memorial, but you're also trying to get some things fixed over there, aren't you? Yes, and this sort of ties in with it. When we got to the end of June, um, just a long story short, I had a whole lot of technical issues starting last September that made it pretty difficult for me to. Uh, get a reliable communication on mass emails, or and uh, that that was one part of the problem. So end of June we were down to zero, and I had to tip and tap in and said, one of the key issues is to maintain our ability. If Congress finally gets the Department of Defense to uh, get busy and work with us as was promised, then we need to be around. And if we're gone, all of our Marine Corps records were the only place Marine Corps records online. All of our uh, databases, all our communications go away, and mm-hmm. it's important for us to stay on. Like you said, it's a bordering on obsession. I read your stuff, <laughs> and uh, we want to be here. And uh, veterans that are still out there want to be here, and, and I'm sure their children do. We just need to find more people to participate. Well, it's 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 as I said before, it's it certainly is a worthwhile cause, and you know. I'm, Unfortunately, our veteran uh, community is is getting smaller by the day. Um, of course, you know none of us ever figured that you know it would be you know what sixty or seventy years ago that we you know that we answered our call. Um, and yeah, we are aging out, unfortunately. And sometimes the technology, you know, is is beyond our means, and so we need some help. 
And I'm, I'm sure that that's, you know, what some of your funding goes to get people to help you with, you know, websites and mailings and, and, and everything else just to keep up with everything else that's going on in the world today. So I encourage everybody in our audience to go to the uh, Korean War Project Facebook page and there's the opportunity there for you to donate. Is there any other way that they can donate to you? Well, they can always go to our main website, thekoreanwar.org, and at the very top of the intro page is a bar. You move across and it goes to membership, or people can just email me or call me. And I'm always ready to be called at 214-320-0342, and the email is real simple, tbarker at kwp.org. But the website is always available, and we really encourage people that are interested to come and reach out directly or go to our GoFundMe. And the GoFundMe is easy to find. It says, Help the Korean War Project Stay Online. And uh, we're out there. I've put it on LinkedIn, on Instagram, next door, and uh, sharing on Facebook. And we're off to a start, but we need to find people who can really disperse the information. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we will certainly do whatever we can to help out Ted. This is Ted Barker from the Korean War Project. And, uh, they need your help. And so we would encourage you, as I said before, either go to their website to make a donation or to participate in their GoFundMe page. So Ted, uh, get back to us in a little while and let us know how it's going. I will do that. All right. Thank you very much. Ted Barker. Thank you. Korean War Project. Thank you, Ted. Okay, so that's item number one. Item number two is we talked with an organization called War Horses for Veterans back in May of 2020. And I don't know if anybody, if you're familiar with what they do, but they, the horses help veterans deal with many of their issues. It's kind of not really that surprising that all of these various animals that we talk about, the dogs and the horses and other things that just kind of help a veteran calm down a little bit. So joining me on the line right now is Patrick Benson, and Patrick is from the War Horses for Veterans, and they've got a really cool event coming up. Patrick, welcome to Veterans Radio. Hey, thank you so much. It's good to be back. How are you all doing? We're doing really well, and it sounds pretty exciting for what you've got going here. Coming up, I uh, I saw that on uh, August 26th, you guys are going to be in Las Vegas. Yeah, well, actually, we uh, sent the horses out. Four o'clock this morning, uh, Jake Draper, uh, one of our uh, guys, a Marine veteran, uh, took the horses and hauled out this morning with actually uh, Brandon, one of the riders. He's another Marine, and we're heading. They're heading to Vegas, so I'll be there first thing tomorrow morning, and we'll be there all week. And the other six riders, which are uh, six Green Berets, they will be competing on Saturday, the twenty-sixth, in the War Horse Challenge down the fence. So they'll the uh, box and the cow and then taking the cow down the fence full speed on our horses. And we've done special trainings leading up to it, but these guys have really only had about 15, 16 days of, of riding. Uh, one of the harder, probably one of the hardest disciplines in the equine industry, just because of the variables and the cattle uh, within the cow horse. It's just been an amazing ride. And we're just incredibly grateful to have, you know, Chris and Sarah Doss and Russell Dilday, Taylor Glissy, Kyle Noyes, all these top, top, top tier one performers in the in their industry, being ambassadors and coaches and being a part of this uh, journey and actually part of our programs now. So, been a, a lot has happened since last time I've been on. 
Yes, it certainly have it has. And um, uh, this uh, War Horse Challenge is being put on by the National Stock Horse Association. And as I said, as we just said, again, this is August 26th in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, tell me a little bit about the War Horse for Veterans. I want to remind our audience what it is that you folks do. Yes. Um, so... Uh, years back, based off of my experience, I was uh, Army Infantry, and then I went in and I was in part of the invasion in 03, Fallujah, Ramadi, all that fun stuff with our guys, and uh, then my time was done. And so I got into the horse industry, started PB Equestrian, uh, we built that up and did well, and then um, over the years, learning, uh, found out learning what I was doing for a living was having a significant impact on me as a combatant. Met some amazing people along the way that were prior service from Vietnam, Korea, World War II, uh, that were horsemen, and they said the horses saved their lives, and I just put two and two together. There's a lot of history, obviously, there, and so from there, I uh, met the Browns, Amy Patricia Brown, that believed in my vision and got uh, 100% on, on board, so we co-founded uh, War Horses for Veterans, uh, for combat veterans, and we originally, you know, transition and mentorship and opportunity using, the, you know, the power of horsemanship, and not to be limited what you can and can't do on the horses. We have the ability to, we have wonderful horses and we're able to go pretty, push the envelope pretty far and do things that you normally don't do in any, you know, most, most equine programs. But a lot of it was too, was opportunities to mentor and, and transition, even if you're still in the service or out. And then we built a facility that we opened up in 2020. We had the beautiful property. We built this beautiful, huge uh, indoor and, and lodge lounge and, we have a guest house across the street that now we can house up to about five five uh, service members at a time. And, you know, and in 2021, we launched the SOFT program, which is the War Horses for Special Operation Forces. And that program as well has really taken off and done well. And then last year in 2022, something I've been working on for a long time, uh, partnered up with Dr. Erickson. Uh, doc, he is the leading head physician for Sporting Kansas City, which is the Major League Soccer uh, professional team here. And he had a executive uh, physical, whole-person approach, very, very in-depth. I uh, was, uh, was noticing, you know, obviously our veteran community, our military community is not healthy. And how are, can we address the whole person? In 2022, we launched the War Horses Elite program, and that's been pretty pretty substantial. So uh, majority, all six of the guys have been through that that are competing and it's uh, been an evolution of progression and you know you're always trying to be better and you're always trying to provide the best services best opportunities for our service members oh absolutely i just think it's just it's so cool what you what you are doing i was on your website earlier today looking at the pictures and the videos of these these uh veterans uh, younger generation of veterans that, um, are all, you know, I don't know what the term is, you know, they're all duded up like cowboys and they're all racing around on their horses. And it sounds like they're, you know, this was not, uh, many of them were not natural horsemen to begin with, were they? No, no, I, 99% of them are. It's the process and the, the way the program's designed. Uh, you get, you jump in the deep end. And then, but you, you got support and you have your team around you to help you learn how to swim. And so, uh, it's, but a lot of it comes down to mindset for some of the stuff that we do, there's different paces with different groups and programs, but 
and more advanced stuff, the further stuff that we can push, that, that really comes down to the individual physically, mentally, and emotionally. Um, and that's the beauty of it. So we're able to, uh, you know, you're not limited to, you're not limited to what you can do. You're only limited to what you limit yourself to. So right. the, and we do stuff like the last year, um, and we had, and we've had them before, but like, uh, 75th Rangers, their LERPs from Vietnam, uh, we've, we've done reunions, but then we brought them back last year and we continue to try to, you know, I always give back and honor the ones who served before us. And we did a, a special deal with that one. We brought back some of our, our mentors. And we, and since we were gone last, I want to share this with you guys. Uh, remember the, the service members, unfortunately, that were hit by the suicide bomber on the evacuation at Kabul at mm-hmm. Abbey Gate. Uh, we had actually one of our uh, mentors running evacuation missions from over here. And he called and was like, hey, we got to do something for these Marines. And uh, the December of that year, that was in August. And that December, we started bringing in groups from Second Recon Marines. And so we've been... Very fortunate. We do. We we try to be. We work with active military, quite a few active military, so we can be proactive in developing these opportunities and uh, education and, and connection uh, while they're in and transitioning in the service before they transition out. So then you're you're getting ahead of the game. And then we reunited the 75th LERPs. We brought in the the commander. Uh, from that group uh, with uh, Second Recon, and they got to hang out with some of the guys who wrote, they were the precursor and wrote the FM basically for reconnaissance, you know, and, and combat. So a lot of the those guys, so that was a very, very special um, opportunity we got to do last year as well. Wow. You guys, you guys are just doing a great job. There are so many worthwhile organizations out there. I wish we could have them all on, and, you know, we're all vying for the same help. Uh, and donations. So I encourage people to go to the uh, War Horses for Veterans website, which I believe that's WHV. Yeah, WHV dot warhorsesforveterans.org. Right. And um, obviously, check out the, if you go to National Stock Horse Association's website, you go down to the show, you can actually click and watch it live. So on the 26th in the afternoon, these gentlemen will be out in the main arena in front of a large crowd competing on their own on their or on our horses and it's going to be an it's going to be an amazing experience this has never been done we're the first to do it in the cow horse especially like this so um you know it's always it's always good to uh break the mold it is it's always good to do that so we've been talking with patrick benson from the war horses for veterans we encourage you to go to their website, find out more about the organization and also the War Horse Challenge. Um, they're going to be at the National Stock Horse Association's War Horse Challenge yeah, on, yeah. Uh, on the 26th. It's on the 26th at South Point Arena, which is the South Point Casino and Hotel, Las Vegas, Nevada. There you go. So all of you like to go out to Vegas, oh, here's hey, another adventure. And uh, guys, you guys want to watch it, you, I'm gonna, he's going to hit I'm, I'm going to throw it out there. We got Mark Nutch is one of the riders. He is the original hor- commander of the horse soldiers from uh, Afghanistan and his horse soldier bourbon, their, their booth is right next to us and we're doing a whole ordeal together. So awesome. Make sure. Awesome. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It is cool. And I, and you just mentioned that we can stream this whole event. Can stream it. Let's make it happen. Okay. We will make it happen. Thank you, Patrick, very much for being on Veterans Radio. Let's not make it another three years before we talk again. That sounds good. We got plenty to fill in, so we can we can we can get another call going sooner than later. Yeah, I think we can do that. Just real quick, where are, where are you folks located? 
We're in Stillwell, Kansas, just south of Kansas City and right up the southern part of uh, Overland Park. So okay. On so the, if on anybody's the doing, side. Yeah, for all you folks that are doing these road trips, check it out if you go through Kansas City. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you. All right. So there is the two organizations that we wanted to, to highlight today. That is, we had Ted Barker with the Korean War Project and Patrick Benson with the War Horses for Veterans. Uh, we're going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, we have our favorite expert on foreign policy and all things in the air and so forth. It's going to be fun. And uh, another little announcement I'll make after we get back. So we're going to take a real quick break. You're listening to Veterans Radio. Coming up next, Dr. Rebecca Grant. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Sergeant First Class Stanley Adams led a 13-man charge against a North Korean force of 150. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. Adams' platoon, holding an outpost some 200 yards ahead of his company, came under a determined attack by an estimated 250 enemy troops. Intense small arms, machine gun and mortar fire from three sides pressed the platoon back against the main line of resistance. Observing approximately 150 hostile troops silhouetted against the skyline advancing against his platoon, Adams leaped to his feet, urged his men to fix bayonets, and with 13 members of his platoon charged the hostile force. Within 50 yards of the enemy, Adams was knocked to the ground when pierced in the leg by an enemy bullet. He jumped to his feet and, ignoring his wound, continued on to close with the enemy when he was knocked down four times from the concussion of grenades which had bounced off his body. Shouting orders, he charged the enemy positions and engaged them in hand-to-hand combat where man after man fell before his terrific onslaught with bayonet and rifle butt. After nearly an hour of vicious action, Adams and his comrades routed the fanatical foe, killing over 50 and forcing the remainder to withdraw. Upon receiving orders that his battalion was moving back, he provided cover fire while his men withdrew. Adams so inspired his comrades that the enemy attack was completely thwarted, saving his battalion from possible disaster. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. And we're back here on Veterans Radio, and joining me on the line right now is Dr. Rebecca Grant. Let me tell you a little bit about her. I know everybody out there who listens to our program knows all about Dr. Grant. She's a national security analyst based in Washington, D.C. She earned her Ph.D. in international relations from the London School of Economics at the age of 25. She's worked for the RAND Corporation. She's been, uh, let's see, she was on the staff of the Secretary of the Air Force, Chief of Staff of the Air Force. She founded her own uh, independent research organization, IRIS. 
she specializes in research for government and aerospace industry clients, ranging from analysis of military campaigns to projects with major technology acquisition, such as the B-21 bomber. Written over 100 articles for Air Force magazine, she appears regularly on the Smithsonian Channel, Fox 2's, Fox News, CNN, and, of course, Veterans Radio. So joining me on the line right now is our good friend, Dr. Rebecca Grant. Good afternoon, Dr. Grant. Hello. Great to be talking with you, Dale. It's always fun to talk with you. Um, so we we were communicating back and forth a little bit over the week to decide what we were going to uh, address today. And I guess we should start out with the uh, Camp David su- uh, summit that President Biden had with uh, the leaders of Japan and, and South Korea. So what do you came out of that? Camp David is the major international news of the week. But, but I understand if maybe you didn't quite catch it, you know, we're still so focused on the disaster in Maui and so many other things going on. But this was a really big deal. It was the first time there's been any kind of summit at Camp David since 2015. And it's Biden's first major summit like this. But more than that, This is two countries, South Korea and Japan, who have been bitter rivals because Japan occupied all of the Korean peninsula before World War II, you know, from about 1910 to 1945. Terrible history of imperial Japan, the warlords, the forced labor of the Korean population. And it's just echoed down through the decades. So, you know, even a year or two ago, this would never have happened. But South Korea has a new president. He's been in about a year, President Yoon. And it turns out he is, he has realized that the threat from North Korea's missiles and from China's military is now so bad that South Korea and Japan have had to just put this bitter history aside. And President Yoon's done a lot to make that happen. The South Korean government actually has paid some reparations to its own citizens to to ease the way. Um, It's not the most popular thing in South Korea, but President Yoon has taken it on. And so what they've done is agree with the U.S., to be a lot closer in the military day-to-day intelligence, surveillance, and sharing, get ready for a big word, the real-time missile data. So this means they've all agreed to watch North Korea and China, if necessary, jointly and to, to, to make immediate decisions if there are missiles launched or provocations coming out of North Korea. So it is, it is a very historic step for them, a major step forward and just tells you, you know, how bad things have gotten out in the Pacific and around the Sea of Japan. Yeah, well, that's for sure. As you mentioned, you know, the kind of bitter enemies have to sit down when it comes to their own common defense. And, um, I can't remember the term that I was, I was thinking about. Well, you know, you want to bring your your enemies closer to you sometimes. But you know, you mentioned that the the problem with you know with China again uh, continuing on with that. Um, what what is happening lately in in uh, the, the Western Pacific with China? 
Wow. I tell you, there's just, there is just so much. It's like, you could go on about this for like about three hours. Uh, but let me just start with what they did yesterday. Which okay. I, yesterday. Okay. You know, it's been quite a year, right? We've had the balloons come over. We've had, you know, we had the, the warships that were up off, uh, the China and Russia had warships up off Alaska a few weeks ago. But yesterday, China flew about 40 military aircraft up into the strait, you know, between China and Taiwan. At least 20 of these uh, hot rod combat jets uh, crossed the median line. And, you know, this happens pretty often. And as China says, they are, first of all, trying to show that China's air forces can control the air domain and the sea areas around Taiwan. That's bad. And the other thing they're doing is they are making a show of force against, um, you know, the U.S., Japan and South Korea, and also to try to impress Taiwan. Okay. So this is this has become I remember a few years ago when China first started flying these big combat packages. And, you know, remember, China does not have any recent combat experience. Zip, zero, none. And let's keep it that way. So that they really ramped up their realistic training. And this is just another example. Um, but And it, a few years ago, you'd say, oh, they do this every so often. Now it's just become you know, we're just seeing China everywhere. We see them in the strait. They fly their bombers off towards Guam on a regular basis. Uh, Japan deals with two or three Chinese or Russian aircraft every day entering their airspace. This has been going on for a couple of years. Every day they they deal with several you know, provocative aircraft. They're staying just on the other side of the line, but the Japanese have to go up and intercept them. So what we're seeing is is just an enormous step function increase in Chinese military activity across the Pacific. There's, they're stretching further. They've also recently had an incident down uh, further south in the South China Sea. The Philippines claim some of that area and the Philippines have a, uh, they parked an old ship on a reef and they keep 12, you know, Philippine military on there at all times. Well, the Chinese fired a water cannon on one of their resupply vessels recently. So from the South China Sea all the way up through the Taiwan Strait and now up into around Japan and over as far as Alaska, we are seeing heavy Chinese military activity. And the, the main reason is the rise of China trying to push back and show that the U.S. is no longer dominant. They want their half of the Pacific. And of course, Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan. Taiwan has presidential elections coming up in early 2024 and the Chinese are just determined to try to sway that election in Taiwan. The, the party that's in power now is President Tsai. They are very in favor of Taiwan independence and de- democracy. They forge their own path. The other party's a little bit more of the China appeasers. And so a lot of this military activity is is really, frankly, to try to intimidate Taiwan and to intimidate any other allies, U.S., Japan, Korea, anybody who might want to help out Taiwan. So, you know, this is this is a very tough world we're living in. That backstop of the Russia-China alliance has made it so much more difficult. And j- just these last few years, I mean, the the changes with what we're seeing of power projection from China is it's just frankly very scary. Yeah, I would I would think so. And then, you know, we're talking about an 
an American military that seems to be growing smaller and smaller, at least as far as recruiting goes and uh, participants in the military. And, um, holy moly, <laughs> we certainly don't want to get involved. I mean, I guess we do. We have to stay involved. I mean, we have to stay, you know, ready. We have to stay prepared. And, you know, there are people who say, well, no, we don't have to worry. It's sort of like what you said in, in Taiwan with the appeasers. And I, and I, I don't think you can do that. You can't afford it. Right. Uh, Taiwan is not optional. It's, there is so much semiconductor computer chip production in Taiwan. And it's a complicated situation. Taiwan, of course, has a lot of trade with China. In fact, they're one of the few that have a positive trade balance with China. Um, so, you know, none of this is easy, but the, what's disturbing the whole arrangement in the Western Pacific is China's aggression, right? Whether it's cyber espionage or in this case, which I'm just talking about flat out military aggression and posturing. You know, it's not like China's just trying to get all this done, uh, through business channels. And so this is another good thing, I think, that, um, you know, if there's one area where I'm going to give the Biden administration decent marks, it's in their Taiwan policy. The uh, the CHIPS Act, which is now about a year old, is trying to reshore some computer chip production here in the United States. They have a long way to go, but they're doing the right thing. The Camp David Summit, the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, was there, and this the summit included initiatives with South Korea and Japan in science and technology cooperation. Now, those are two actually really big economies. Japan has the world's third largest economy, and South Korea is very, very strong as well. Um, so then there's a, a very sort of intricate piece of this where the U.S. and South Korea and Japan are saying, wow, let's look at our supply chains and make sure that we have alternate sources of supply for things that we get from China. Um, and it sounds super technical, but it is it, those trade deals in the end are what really provide a strong foundation for the increased defense cooperation. And what it's China's aggression that is causing all of this. That said, you know, China's got some problems. They have an overheated housing market. One of their huge uh, mortgage lender outfits is approaching default and everybody's waiting to see if the Chinese, you know, central communist party is going to step in and bail them out. China has a declining population and a declining fertility rate. So actually India just surpassed China in total population. But the trouble is there may be long-term factors going on, but we have immediate problems all caused by China's attempt to push back against U.S. influence to cozy up to Russia and, of course, to try to influence that Taiwan election coming up in 24. Busy folks, busy people. Uh, and you mentioned it just, just now. I was, I was curious. Let's, we can continue uh, a little bit further west to India. If you just mentioned that, you know, that their population evidently is now exceeding what China has, which is billion or so people. How is, is, how is in India playing their cards with, you know, us and and the uh, and Chinese and Russian and so forth. Right, India is a very cagey, strategic 
player. India has, of course, now the, the largest population by just a little bit. They're not as powerful as China economically, but they are quite strong. And they have, for, for many decades after the British departed in the late 1940s and, and India became its own state, India kind of didn't want to get too close to anybody else after all those centuries of colonialism. Uh, and so India would play off Russia and the, uh, and the U.S. and all this. But that really started to change um, a few years ago. And we've seen actually probably three administrations in a row, right through from Obama to President Trump and President Biden, try to really improve ties with India. And it's now become a pretty interesting talking point in Washington. I hear a lot of discussion about how can we lean forward with India. We sell them some advanced aircraft. Uh, Boeing sells them the P-8 radar surveillance plane, for example. There are a lot of joint ventures and, you know, the, the, the number one thing that's good for the U.S. is India hates China. <laughs> so there is a quite a bitter rivalry. A couple of years ago, there was a border incident between Indian and Chinese soldiers that resulted in uh, about a dozen dead Indian soldiers. And I tell you, these are not countries that like each other at all. In the Pacific, though, what we'll never really see is something like NATO. In Europe, all the countries want to belong to NATO. We've just seen Sweden and Finland come in, you know, up to now 32 members. It's a very formal alliance. They get together for dinners and do all the military cooperation, political cooperation. The Pacific is different. There's often a desire to have some uh, public a cooperation like we saw at the Camp David summit, but also to keep some of it kind of subtle. And that means that there are several overlapping uh, alliance arrangements, our arrangement with Australia, of course. And then, you know, what they call the, the quad, which includes, you know, several of these countries as well. So we're trying to draw India closer into the Western sphere while respecting that they are a major power in their own right. And they want to be able to you know, maintain their uh, what great phrase from the 1960s, non-aligned, you know, the non-aligned, <laughs> that was India to a T. And but they are definitely not on China's side. We really do see the world dividing into two camps and, you know, Russia's on China's side. But luckily, I would say India, they want to be subtle about it. But India is more on the side of, of the Western world and of commerce and of trade. And they have such a a crucial place. You can see this, uh, you know, our, our military has renamed what used to be Pacific Command is now called Indo-Pacific Command. And that tells you about the recognition of the importance of India in global security. Okay. I was, I was, I was thinking about, we're talking with Dr. Rebecca Grant here uh, about the world's situations as best that we can. And um, I was remembering back to school and wasn't there a Southeast Asia Treaty Organization at some point, CETO? Good for you. You get, you get an A. <laughs> you get an A. Yes, there was a CETO at one point. Yes, exactly. But it's, uh, it, it never really took off in the way that NATO did. And so our Pacific security is largely bilateral. But now we are seeing, so that's, again, why Camp David, uh, the meeting on Friday was significant. And it's not a formal, formal partnership, but it is a huge step forward and agreement on the issues that really matter, including a lot of cooperation on cyber activity 
and on trying to uh, keep a close eye on North Korea and all their missile shots. I think all those things that are going on out there in the in the Pacific Ocean, the Western Pacific Ocean there, I think it's kind of interesting that we need to make sure that we keep funding the Navy. Yes, we do. And the Navy is, wow, they uh, our Navy's smaller than it's been in a long time. And there are plans to build it up. But the shipbuilding is very difficult. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. And one thing I think the Navy has done really well is to continue to fund the production of destroyers. They are so useful because they carry, for instance, for one thing, they have, um, you know, the great missile defense radars and that great ability to provide sea-based missile defense. That's a, a mission that's relatively new to the Navy. It's really come on in the last 15 years or so, 20, 15, 20 years. But it is a very, very big territory out there. And we need to have a Navy that is properly sized to be able to handle it. And, and you know what? The, the things that have disturbed me this year is to see China operating so far north up around Alaska and with Russia, 11 Russian and Chinese warships. We sent four destroyers up to counter them. Now, I guarantee you the Navy watched those Chinese vessels pull out a port, rendezvous with the Russians and steam on up to Alaska. And they watched that very closely. So sending four destroyers was a pretty big signal that, hey, we have our eye on you, China and Russia. And you think, you know, you're all that and Russia's guarding your northern flank. But we can still really see what you're doing. Four destroyers, maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a pretty big chunk of the deployable ready combat power out there in the Pacific, and they're very, very capable. Um, and you don't forget our Coast Guard has a role out there as well in their deep water mission. But we need to continue to fund this, and we haven't, I think, funded the shipbuilding accounts in the way that we would have liked to in the past, and we're just going to have to keep doing it. Of course, the Navy's top priority is their nuclear submarine program, the Columbia class, and that along with the other, um, the uh, new ICBM program and the B-21 bomber is a major investment over many years in sustaining our nuclear deterrence triad because, of course, China is building up its nuclear arsenal and so is North Korea. Holy moly. You know, it's it's, it's just a a constant struggle um, to to keep things in balance. You know, it's it's not like, you know, since we became the arsenal of democracy back in in World War II and we've kind of you know, took over babysitting the rest of the world since then. And, you know, there are people that say we should back off, but I don't see any reason, any way that we can. I mean, if you're talking about China and you're talking about North Korea, and then we go around to the other side of the world and we've got Russia with their, you know, their invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, Ukraine is doing, I, I think, a marvelous, you can't use the word marvelous job in a war, but, but they're doing, a, you know, a great job with what they've got and that NATO countries have really, uh, I, I think maybe, and you can correct me on this, please is, you know, supplying them with materials and everything just short of providing troops for them. So how, how do you see this thing working out if at all? Well, I agree that Ukraine has been absolutely heroic and all along 
Ukraine has never asked for any ground forces or any troops or any military force at all from the U.S. or from NATO. They have been adamant that this is their war and they want to fight it themselves. So, you know, and I think that's just, it's heroic of them. I, I heard a, uh, a story here around D.C. that the Ukraine in its sort of recruiting and drafting for its armed forces is starting to think, hmm, we we can't take all the men in the 20 to 30 year age group we have to we have to make sure we leave enough you know to be able to have a viable state demographically you know long term um ukraine has taken some pretty high casualties this summer and you know where things stand right now is they have done an excellent job it is about a a 600 mile front, it loops around from, you know, about half of that's in the east and the Donbass. You hear that phrase all the time. But the other really crucial half right now is the peace down in the south. So Ukraine is essentially doing a holding action in the east around towns like Bakhmut, et cetera, where there was so much bloody fighting earlier this spring. And what we're all looking at now is to see whether Ukraine can make a breakthrough in this crucial sector in the south. And it's the sector is about, uh, however you want to define it, it's about, you know, 50, 100 miles long, ranges from kind of the Zaporizhia area where the Dnieper River is so wide over out towards the east. And the idea is there has to be a breakthrough to get down to one of those coastal cities on the Black Sea or to get to a crucial junction. Um, we've heard a lot of talk recently about the city of Melitopol because it sits on a crucial highway and rail bridge, but there are other possibilities. The problem is that standing in the way of Ukraine is uh, around Kherson, you've got the Dnieper River, but then you have several uh, Russian minefields. And the Russians started mining this area back in late 2022. And some uh, bright fellow over at the Pentagon about a month ago said, wow, those minefields the Russians put in it was a little more than we were expecting. And I'm like, oh, come on, you know, you could, you must have been watching all this with satellites and infrared and you name it. So there's challenge and opportunity. You know, obviously we don't know what the plans really are, but to, to my read of the map of Ukraine, it's, and where that front is in the South, uh, the Ukrainian forces have to be able to break through at a certain point if they can get through one of those minefields, then they have a really excellent chance, I think, of inflicting a pretty sharp defeat on Russia and potentially rounding up, uh, you know, a whole city's worth of Russian forces. This is because, um, and the British have pointed this out just recently, Russia's forces are now stretched pretty thin. Their morale is low. They're down to, you know, the ones that don't have the best training. They've had very high casualties. So there is the potential for Ukraine to punch through and uh, grab part of that southern area back. Big picture, why do they need to get the south back? There are just too many Russian troops occupying a lot of those key Black Sea and Sea of Azov ports. Ukraine can't really be an economically viable state like the way it should be with all those Russians sitting in the south where the grain flows out. Um, and so are they going to do this breakthrough? Well, you know, I, I'm so frustrated because we're making them do this without air power, right? And they they have a lot of equipment. 
Britain alone has trained 20,000 Ukrainians. I mean, they just, the guys arrive in Britain. It's like, Hey, here's, here's a gun and here's how you fight. You know, they're doing it as quick as they can, but have we really given them enough? Have we given them enough of a plan? Uh, can they get through those defensive lines? I think they can do it, but it hasn't happened yet. And so the, the debate is, you know, I think what we see is Ukraine trying to move a little bit more slowly to consolidate more of a broad front and then punch through. But uh, we'll see. They did really well last fall, I would point out. So we may see more activity in the fall. But, uh, you know, all eyes still on how that's going to progress. And that will determine the kind of peace settlement that that happens there. Yeah, you, you would think that, they, that you know, Russia is, is their economy is suffering from this. Um I don't think I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, that Putin's power is a little bit less than it was before. I mean, he, in that type of a, a, of a government, you're not, you know, he's always going to be a strong man, but there's got to be some people that are very upset with the losses and just the money that's, that's just being thrown at that. Yes. I, I think it's the war is affecting Russia in several ways, very high casualties running out of good generals to put in charge. We saw the Prigozhin mutiny back in June, and that was, hmm, you know, that didn't leave Putin in a stronger position. As far as sanctions in the economy, yes, you know, the ruble is as low as it's ever been. Uh, Russia is still selling quite a bit of oil, even under the European price caps, but they're starting to run some budget deficits. The problem is that with Putin, just economic chaos is not going to make him stop fighting. So it's going to take, to my mind, he's got to really lose a big section of the Russian forces there, or Ukraine has to really attack the uh, Russian occupiers in Crimea as well. There are plenty of legitimate military targets of where Russians are occupying Ukrainian land. And I think it's going to take something more like that to prod Putin. He does not, Putin does not seem to want to negotiate at this point. Remember, he does have to deal also with some far right nationalists who think Putin isn't doing enough to win in Ukraine. I will point out that one thing we have not seen materialize this year is really any sort of Russian offensive. They are pretty clearly not capable of doing anything more than holding out behind those minefield belts in the south. Um, and what what this will mean for Putin is very hard to say, but I think there's no question the next step has to be more battlefield success by Ukraine, even to change this political situation. And it does not help that China is backing up Russia in everything they do. And then let's throw in Iran. There was recently a report that Iran has, of course, sold drones to Russia. They use them to attack cities in Ukraine. Russia is now beginning to manufacture copies of these Iranian drones. Oh, and by the way, Russia's defense minister, good old Sergei Shoigu, met with the North Koreans uh, a couple of weeks ago to ask for some more ammunition. So, uh, you know, there's signs that Russia's is, is, is under stress. The economy's under stress and that Russia, Russia is not winning this war. But on the other hand, these bad actor allies, China's top of the list is making it possible for Putin to continue this horrible fight in Ukraine. Well, we're coming up to the end of the hour. It's hard to believe here. That we've, you know, we've, we've covered so much and there's still so much to cover. Um, 
I wanted to make a, just a brief announcement here for those of you that are listening to Veterans Radio today is Dr. Rebecca Grant is going to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan on Saturday, September 30th for our Radio on the River second annual um, fundraising event. And we're so grateful that she has accepted our invitation to do so. I'm excited about the Radio on the River. I can't wait for it. September 30th. I hope we'll see a lot of people there. We will. We will. Uh I just got the sign for two minutes left. So you had two things you wanted to mention. Number one is we have a, a female service, a, a female service chief leading the Navy. How did that get past Tuberman? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> good point. So Admiral Lisa Franchetti is going to be the chief of naval operations when confirmed. As you know, uh, Senator Tuberville has a hold on all. Uh, military promotions at the moment is over 150 men and women are held up, but hopefully that will ease up at some point and she will be the first woman to lead a branch of the United States Armed Forces. Very impressive. And the second point I want to make is, hey, we have an election coming up too, and there is a Republican mm-hmm. debate on August 23rd. And uh, if you watch, look for a commander in chief. I have not in my career seen a more perilous time on the international scene for our country over these last 20 or 30 years. Things are really tough out there. And whoever you're going to vote for, I want you to, they always say everybody votes the economy, not foreign policy. But this time, folks, look over all your candidates and look for a commander in chief. Our servicemen and women deserve it. And wow, boy, do we have a lot of, uh, a lot to take care of in upholding the rule of law and trying to make this world a better place. We need a really strong commander in chief next time around. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Rebecca Grant, our favorite guest here on Veterans Radio. And as we've just mentioned before, she'll be in uh, the, the local area on September 30th. And come on out, Radio on the River. Check out our website, veteransradio.org. Thank you very much, Dr. Grant, for being on the program. And uh, we'll be in touch not only about that, but of course, to get caught up on what else is going on in the world sometime before December. All righty. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, we got to go. So next week is our benefits program. You've been listening to Veterans Radio. We'll be back next week. Until then, you are dismissed. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again With just my children and my wife I thank my lucky stars To be living here today Cause the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American To the hills of Tennessee Across the plains of Texas 
Nam see the shining sea From Detroit down to Houston And New York to L.A. Where there's pride in every American heart And it's time we stand and say There ain't no doubt I love this land